Hey, Tom here. Would you pay $20 a month to have a blue tick on Facebook and Instagram? I know I certainly wouldn't. Um, Yeah, they're going the way of Twitter. So Meta is rolling out this new verification service starting in Australia and New Zealand first before being rolled out elsewhere around the world. Twitter did it last year for $8 a month and it had loads of problems. So what is Mark Zuckerberg doing? Is it financial desperation? That's coming up after the headlines. First, here they are with Jan Fran. It is the 3rd of March. G'day, Tom. We're starting with some robo-debt news today. The former senior Morrison Minister Stuart Robert uh, has taken responsibility for robo-debt. I know there's a little bit of surprise there in my voice because (laughs) you don't usually hear me saying that about our parliamentarians. Um, This is the scheme that uh, I think you might remember charged $1.7 billion in unlawful debts. Oh, absolutely, Commissioner. As a senior member of the government, I take absolute responsibility with, as part of Cabinet Solidarity for this. But I also take responsibility for being the minister that called it out to say we've got to get advice and stop it. So Stuart Robert was um, the minister that was in charge of robo-debt in 2019. Uh, he was there before the Royal Commission and it heard that um, he admitted that he had these misgivings about the scheme. He knew that it was a bit dodgy. It had come to his attention. But that he supported it publicly anyway. Um, Here's this very interesting exchange that happened between him and Commissioner Catherine Holmes. I remain a Cabinet Minister and I'm responsible for holding the Cabinet line. And as a dutiful Cabinet Minister, ma'am, that's what we do. Misrepresent things to the Australian public. Uh, I wouldn't respectfully put it that way. (laughs) That is so good. So we heard earlier in this commission that... He had advice from the Solicitor General that the scheme was illegal and doubled down anyway. So the truth is coming out about the way this was handled and and the way he just pushed through. Well, there was a very interesting line that he said as well. He, he, He said something about cabinet solidarity, that he continued to push this narrative because of cabinet solidarity, that that's just how politics worked. You know, mm. even if you thought something was a bit dodgy or you couldn't really go out there and go against your own government, I mean, you could, but there would be huge consequences for that and that would cause all sorts of issues. So he sort of stuck to the party line, which, as with a lot of things um, around this Robodet Commission, I hate hearing them, but I'm glad I'm hearing them because it sort of pulls the curtain away from how, you know, politics really works and you have these moments where you're like, oh, of course it works like that. <laughs> okay. Doesn't make me feel great. <laughs> no. And the death toll from the train crash in Greece earlier this week has gone up to 57 and lots of them were students. So this happened on Tuesday night. It was a passenger train carrying 350 people colliding with a freight train travelling on the same track near a town called Larissa. There was panic. For 10, 15 seconds, it was chaos. Tumbling over, fires, cables hanging, broken windows, people screaming, people trapped. Yeah, pretty graphic stuff there. The search and rescue teams are still looking for survivors and a station master has been arrested and will face court for manslaughter by negligence. Greece's transport minister has also resigned. So there's a lot of anger over this and some pretty serious fallout, Jan. It's the country's deadliest rail crash. Um, so it's it's not hugely surprising that it sparked 
protests there in the capital, Athens. Um, the government has promised an independent investigation, but um, certainly things are still very raw right now. And Sticky Fingers has been dropped from the Blues Fest lineup. Um, if you've been following this story, uh, previous musical acts, Sampa the Great and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, both pulled out of the festival last week. This was over Sticky Fingers' inclusion. Um, and now the director of Blues Fest, Peter Noble, has issued a statement yesterday saying this. Now I'm going to read from the statement here verbatim. He says, Blues Fest cannot sadly continue to support Sticky Fingers by having them play at our 2023 edition. Uh, we apologise to those artists, sponsors and others that we involved in this matter through our mistaken belief that forgiveness and redemption are the rock on which our society is built. So he's mm. been really towing that line of we need to have forgiveness and we need to, you know, be inclusive and there needs to be redemption for this band. And even though they've been dropped, I think he's still, you know, uh, holding on to that position quite clearly from the statement that he's put out. Yeah, I'm really surprised to see that he's had to back down here. Um, he's really tried to withstand the pressure to cancel Sticky Fingers from the lineup. Um, but um, what I'm hearing from um, people who've been speaking to the Blues Fest organisers is that there was additional pressure from other acts, which is why um, he's eventually had to cave in. And my personal opinion is this is this is really unfair um, that six, seven years on from some incidents that tarnished um, this band's reputation and, and hurt some other people, that they're still being pressured to be pulled off a lineup and do what they do for a living, which is play music. Yeah, I think this one's a bit tricky because it's, you know, uh, it's a question around the road, for me anyway, like what is the road to redemption and who decides? Um, is it the Blues Fest director, Peter Noble, does he get to decide? Is it the other bands? Is it the audiences that are going to be uh, heading over to Blues Fest? Who gets to make these decisions? I don't think there's a clear answer to that question, really. Well, I think in this case, um, Peter Noble tried to decide and tried to withstand the pressure, but ultimately it appears to have been the other bands that have really wielded the power here. They have the power to sort of threaten to pull out of a lineup and to really make a festival look like it's falling apart. And so these artists have decided that a few incidents five, six, seven years ago is enough to stop another band from doing what they do. Anyway, there's some other great bands playing the festival, so hopefully it still goes really well because the festival itself has had a, a really tough few years because of COVID. So let's hope it's still an awesome festival. And Aboriginal spears taken by Captain Cook to the UK are being returned home to Botany Bay after 250 years. So there are four spears. Um, they're believed to be the last remaining four of around 40 collected by first colonialists. They had been kept at the University of Cambridge in the UK and the college has now agreed to return them after a two-decade-long campaign by Indigenous people. They're finally coming back to Australia. About time, I say. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's lots of other things in the UK that people want back as well, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's um, remains of Indigenous leaders that um, 
Indigenous people in Australia have been rallying to try and get them returned home. And some have been. Some have been sent back to Australia. But there's, I mean, there's all sorts of Australian artefacts in museums all over the world, really, that were stolen. And I remember a few years ago there was a gentleman who was um, uh, an Aboriginal Australian man who would give these illegal museum tours. I, I think it was of the British Museum that were just more sort of an accurate representation of Aboriginal history than what he thought the museum was putting together. And he'd get kicked out and come back in, which I just thought was so baller. But, yeah, give us our stuff back. (laughs) All right, Jam, we'll catch you next week. Katrina's about to join me for a look at the Blue Tick Strategy by Meta. So, Katrina, will you be paying 25 bucks to use Facebook and Instagram with a blue verified tick? No, I would so much rather use that for shoe money. I have to tell you, it just feels like, just no, no, making Mark Zuckerberg even richer, no. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is what he wants people to do and he's targeted us here in Australia and New Zealand for this new verified identification service. I mean, it didn't seem to go very well at Twitter where people can pay $8 a month to have a blue ticket. created a whole lot of problems, but just last week, Mark Zuckerberg at Meta said they'd be doing it as well. So 20 bucks if you're going through your computer or $25 a month via your phone. Now, you used to be able to get the blue tick for free, so it's hard to see the value. Yeah, and also it used to be like this hugely aspirational thing. So even though 25 bucks a month is is a fair whack of coin over the course of a year, it's still not like hugely out of reach for most people. So it does diminish the appeal of the blue tick. Um, so far, this is only available in Australia and New Zealand, but it's going to be rolled out worldwide, I guess, if this is a success. It's also a handy revenue raising tool at a time when the popularity of Insta and Facebook are really struggling. The share price is off over 50% and thousands of staff have been laid off. Well, it's only a good revenue tool if people actually tank it up. So it'll be interesting to see (laughs) if they do. So to get our heads around this and to talk about the overall state of these big social media companies, we're joined by Claire Riley, who's a journalist for CNET in San Francisco. Claire, thanks so much for joining us. Were you surprised to see Meta go this direction? I kind of was, to be honest, because the... I'm trying to put this delicately. Twitter has been going through some stuff recently. So when they had this whole move towards a paid blue tick, I think a lot of people just looked at it as, oh, you know, they're trying to make money. Elon Musk is throwing things at the wall to see what sticks because he was the new CEO trying to turn this company around. But then to see such an established player like Meta bring in verification, paid verification across Facebook and Instagram, these two massive social networks, I was quite surprised. And and really surprised by the cost. I guess the optimist in me thinks, well, Mark Zuckerberg has obviously watched the chaos unfold at Twitter and watched how the blue tick subscription model did not work, to put it delicately, over there. And he must have a better idea. How is his version of this verification subscription model different? 
So essentially what he's going to require is that you sort of uh, pay to play and it's for private individuals. So unlike what we saw with Twitter, where verification could be bought on any account for $8 a month and what happened over there was private individuals setting up accounts. So if you've got private individuals, people like you and me, we can pay and have our government ID uh, associated with our account. But of course, at the same time, similar to what happened with Twitter, we are going to still have this kind of two tiers of verification. Claire, what do you reckon this says about the commercial viability of big social media companies? To me, it seems like they're in big trouble. Is that right? Well, the really interesting thing that we saw with verification on Twitter was that it pushed all of these companies out who suddenly realized that this platform was becoming quite toxic quite quickly. And companies means advertisers, right? So Twitter's verification service at $8 a month, despite the fact that they have millions of users, estimates put it at about 300,000 people taking Twitter up on that offer. I don't know. Obviously, Facebook has a much larger user base, but I got to say, I'm not sure whether putting customers, the customers, because we are the users and the customers here, putting those people offside is necessarily the best business case. Are they going to use lose advertisers. It's a big risk. And you've got to remember, this is all happening at a time when, as I say, Facebook is skewing older and everyone wants to get that young demographic. And those people are on Snapchat and TikTok. But I really think there's a massive shift right now in the way we're using these platforms Mm. and the way these companies are selling them to us. Yeah. What do you think that shift is? Are we just sick of this model? I mean, personally, I feel with Instagram, it's relied on us sharing our personal lives so much. And I, I feel like we've we've shared it all. We've posted all the life photos and, and nothing feels new on Instagram. Whereas I know that TikTok is more about conversations and trending topics. So it's more about discussing ideas or reactions to things rather than sharing inside your personal lives. And I wonder if just these these platforms based on the, the idea of sharing have had their time. Yeah, I certainly know that with Instagram, I, as a quote-unquote geriatric millennial, she, (laughs) you know, my bones turn to dust as I say that, but I am definitely considered an older user of social media as well on Instagram. It's definitely that kind of millennial user base. Younger users, 20-somethings and in their teens are were flocking to apps like Be Real, which was the platform I think we talked about last Mm. time that was, um, Mm. it allows you to take really realistic, grungy, you know, have to be taken in the moment photos of yourself. TikTok, it is a platform for an exchange of ideas, but I don't know if you go on there and compared to Instagram Reels, which Instagram is pushing really hard, those really glossy, beautiful mm. videos. TikTok is like, I'm I'm shooting something in my car on my phone and here's what I think about this thing mm. and it's got, you know, 8 million mm. views, right? I think it's a really interesting time in social media and I all I know is that the platforms we have taken for granted for the past 10 years won't necessarily be the big platforms in the next 10 years. Yeah, I know you just mentioned Be Real and that certainly had a hot moment there. But look, from all accounts, that that's kind of yesterday's news. What are some of the emerging platforms that you think are going to give Instagram and Facebook, I guess, but more so Instagram, a run for their money in the future? 
TikTok is really where it's at right now. I, advertisers still have to work out how to use TikTok. I know a lot of media companies are starting to play in it as well. Uh, a lot of brands are starting to get into TikTok. Snapchat is obviously a really big one, but um, it's still quite niche in a way in the sense of younger people using it. I don't necessarily know that it's got that broad generational appeal that, say, Facebook has. But on my TikTok, I am seeing, you know, young drag queens. I'm seeing older people, you know, just doing stuff in their little North Carolina home. Like it is such a broad range of people. But as a business, will it go through a similar cycle potentially to what Meta's experiencing now? So it goes through extraordinary growth, initially struggling to make real money out of it. And I'd be interested to know if you think TikTok's making money yet. Eventually, advertisers get on board. It becomes a very profitable platform, but it hits a peak. And it seems that Facebook hit a peak in 2021. Share prices off more than 50% since then. And it's going through this tough kind of plateau or, or later stage in its life cycle. Do you see a similar trajectory for TikTok? Potentially, yeah. But remember, I mean, I first joined Facebook, I think, 2005. Mm. My goodness. That's a really long time in the tech world. We're Mm. talking almost 20 years. It's still the biggest platform. It still has so many users. I think TikTok is a different model. TikTok is kind of the let's keep your eyeballs on this for as long as possible and then four hours later you kind of awake from that slumber and go, what have I been doing? It's definitely changing the way advertisers are coming to market. You know, they're not doing these glossy ads anymore because they look fake in the TikTok world. A lot of ads are someone just going like, oh, I tried this new makeup and here I am in my bathroom, you know, testing it out. It's really lo-fi in the kind of aesthetic, but I am interested in how they're going to monetize it. There is a sense that I think regulators are starting to crack down. They say they we don't want these tech companies to have as much power as they traditionally have. There's, you know, talks about antitrust or competition, you know, being able to break up some of these bigger companies. So some of those days of these huge behemoths, the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, the heyday of those big companies being the the golden children, I think those days are definitely shifting. Mm. So do you think for Mark Zuckerberg it was uh, the blue tick was genius from a, you know, a man who's now quite mature as a businessman in this space or desperation? I wouldn't want to say desperation. I wouldn't want to say genius either. I think there's a kind of a thing like when one company does something and then they see that everyone else is pretty happy to pay it. Okay. Maybe we just try it as well. You know, you've seen it with hotels, you've seen it with ticket fees, you've seen it with airlines paying to have a front seat on the plane. It's not something we love as consumers, but if people pay for it, hey, they might as well try it, you know, if they aren't going to get too many people offside. Why do you reckon they chose Australia and New Zealand? Is it because we are early adopters? I think Australia and New Zealand are, they're small markets, but quite similar to the US, you know, English speaking, you know, Facebook has had a lot of its own issues in foreign language markets or sorry, non-English speaking markets, foreign language to the US, that is problems like misinformation and so forth. So I guess it's an English speaking market, much smaller than the US, but they're able to roll it out there easily and effectively. And then we see this sometimes, you know, I know with um, Netflix price changes, sometimes they come into foreign markets, Australia, Canada, that kind of thing first. So maybe just a small experimentation. But I do think for Australians, we do adopt things early, quickly. We are very tech savvy. So I think there's that element as well. 
That was Claire Riley, who is a journalist with CNET in San Francisco. And Tom, I don't know, maybe it's naive of us to think that social media is always going to be free. They say that if you are not paying for the product, then you are the product. I know Hmm. myself, I have clicked on and purchased many a thing because I've seen it on Instagram that perhaps I wouldn't have otherwise bought. So yeah, more for me. (laughs) Well, yeah, but this is a subscription model as opposed to being you know, targeted by very clever advertising. So uh, that's us paying up front for this service that we've had for 15 years for free. I can't see many people Mm. taking that up. I won't be. I've come close to not using Facebook. You know, I've taken months and months off Facebook without really noticing. You know, it was actually only the marketplace that got me back in. The marketplace! Looking for bike stuff. I love that that was your reason for going back. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I don't think this is going to work. And I think I think they are really struggling financially. Um, that's why the valuation of the company's come off so much. And I don't see this shifting the needle. What I am interested in is this, this metaverse idea and whether that can really build into something big that is eventually profitable, whether that really is a true sort of visionary concept by Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. and he has another round of brilliance left in him or whether it is really waning. Yeah, Time will tell. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who are you interviewing this week? I have had the most wonderful conversation for the weekend with Dilruk Jayasinghar, who is, of course, one of Australia's most in-demand comedians. I was really surprised, though, where our conversation went. Dilbrook surprised me. I, like, I knew he was going to be a really funny guy. Like, it's his job to be a really funny guy. <laughs> but he was so warm and candid and was really willing to be vulnerable. We talked about his experiences when he first moved to Australia and his his efforts to kind of mask his ethnicity in order to fit in. We talked about his health and the fact that he had a heart attack last year at age just 37 and how he's come back from that and how he's thinking about life now. He's also quit booze, which is a massive thing uh, for someone like Dilruk, who was was a big drinker and a big party guy before that. This is such a good conversation and will be a great way for everyone to start their Saturday. Amazing. I'm looking forward to that one. And a big thank you to the hardworking briefing team, um, Dan Mullins, Eleanor Harrison, Dan Gate, Helen Smith, Nicole Castles, uh, our socials team, Sarah Boll, Poppy Manzi, and our editor, Matt Kazkari. Thank you. Listener.